Daniel chapter 3, and we're in this series called uh, The World Seems Out of Control, But. Uh, if you're new, we're really glad you're here. If you don't know me, my name is Jimmy Inman. I'm the teaching pastor here at uh, True Life, and we're walking verse by verse through the book of Daniel over about a 13-week period. But uh, I, I want to start, uh, uh, kind of set things up today uh, with a clip from a movie, and, and there's a line in here that uh, kind of come back to that uh, kind of through the message, and I don't know if you know the movie or not, it's based on a true story. I mean, like any movie, I guess, it's somewhat fictionalized, but it, it, the name of the movie is Glory. It, it's a Civil War movie about the, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, which was the first all-black volunteer uh, regiment in the Civil War, and, uh, you know, they handled themselves very bravely, which was a part of shattering some, you know, terrible myths about black people being inferior, they couldn't serve in combat, those kind of things. But uh, the, the scene is the night before a big battle, and they're, I guess, kind of trying to get themselves psyched up for it. It's around a campfire, and so their sergeant, played by Morgan Freeman, is kind of praying. He's kind of making a motivational speech, kind of pick it up in the middle of it. But uh, just watch this clip, listen to what it says. I want you to let our folks know that if we go down, we go down standing up. I think in a sense that's the story of Daniel chapter 3. If we're going to go down, let's go down standing up. So let, let's, let's read what the story says here. I mean, this is, uh, you know, if you've been to Bible school, Sunday school as a kid, uh, you know, watch Veggie Tales, whatever, you're probably familiar with this story. Um, but let's look at... Um, what the scripture actually says here. Uh, let's read the first 15 verses, kind of get the background, the setup, and, and then uh, we'll say a little bit, come back to the second half. But it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so 
Uh, a cubit's about 18 inches, so we're talking like 90 feet by 9 feet. You know, 90 feet's like a nine-story building. And, you know, Bible scholars debate exactly, you know, how this would have been laid out and everything because, you know, nine feet doesn't seem like, uh, you know, enough of a base. Uh, there is a French archaeologist who thinks that he's found the remains of this, but uh, that's still a debated point. Uh, there's also the question of, like, why would he do this? I mean, other than it really wasn't uncommon for an ancient king to do something, but, you know, what's his motivation here? You know, other than, you know, Nebuchadnezzar seems like kind of a megalomaniac who needs anger management classes. I mean, we'll see him, you know, kind of getting ticked off again in this chapter like we did uh, last chapter. But, you know, some Bible scholars speculate that um, maybe it's because, you know, the, the vision, the dream, the interpretation last chapter, he was the head of gold. Now he's going to make a statue of gold and he wants everybody to wor worship that. But, you know, we don't know for sure. But anyway, so he makes this idol. And it says that he sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So the setup here I think is pretty clear. You know, he makes this big idol, gathers everybody together, and says, either bow down and worship it, or you're going to die. That's pretty much what it boils down to. And so verse 7 says, at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the, the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of these different musical instruments, and I'm not going to read them all every time, <coughs> that in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And then it says, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now, if you're ready at the time, at the sound of these different instruments, uh, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. In other words, boys, I'm going to give you a second chance, but this is it. 
And he says, if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And, and this question maybe frames the whole passage. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? So, really, he's not just challenging them. It's like he's challenging God directly. I, I mean, this is an arrogant statement. Who is the God who's going to deliver you from my... He, he's really saying, it's like, I'm God. Nobody's stronger than me. Nobody can do this. <coughs> Nobody can uh, overcome me and, and, and what I'm saying to do here. Although we're going to see next week in chapter 4 that God does humble him and bring him to his knees. So, uh, you know, if, if you're too proud... To say, I can never, you know, bow to God, you might watch out because, you know, God's plan A is humility, but his plan B is humiliation. You know, the Bible says pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before uh, destruction. And, and so, but, you know, the, kind of the context that we're giving this series is that the world seems out of control. And, and again, they had no control you know, one of the ways that can manifest itself is it seems like God's people are being tr mistreated. They were, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we still have this tendency, even if we reject the prosperity gospel, to be like, uh, you know, just somehow, even subconsciously, it's like, if I'm a Christian, I'm blessed, and, you know, things ought to be good, and things shouldn't be that hard, things shouldn't be that difficult, but that's not the reality. Because the reality is, just like here, it often seems like that the enemies of God are winning. I mean, it seemed like Nebuchadnezzar held all the cards, that he was in control, that it was going to be his way, that nobody could stand up to him. It's, it's the truth that God's people are confronted uh, with the idols of this world. You know, we have idols to battle in our own hearts. There's the idols of our culture that, you know, and, and that we're being called to bow down and worship. But, you know, one of the things that's pictured in this passage that is so true is that everybody is a worshiper. See, I, I used to think that only Christians could worship. And, and, and it is true that only Christians can really, truly worship the one true God because the only way to really truly worship the right God is through Jesus Christ. But everybody's a worshiper. We're all worshiping something or someone. The only question is, are we worshiping an idol? Are we worshiping a God of our own making? Are we worshiping our, you know, the true and living God? What are we worshiping? You know, really, whatever we give the highest place in our lives, whatever we you know, sacrifice for, are most devoted to, give glory to, find our identity in. That's functionally our God and functionally what we worship. What are we worshiping? Is it Jesus? Do you believe Jesus is God, that he rose from the dead, that he's worthy of worship? Or is it something else that we're worshiping? I mean, how do you define yourself? What do you really uh, sacrifice for and put in the first place in your heart. But another thing that we see here that you know, makes just living this world a challenge sometimes is that God's people are often criticized and sometimes even persecuted by the people of this world. That's what happened to them. 
right? The, the, these people came and uh, basically, you know, when I was a kid, we'd have called it tattling. You know, they, they, they tattled on them. It's like, you know, you told everybody to bow down, but these Jews, and I don't even know if there's maybe some anti-Semitism under the surface there. You know, these Jews aren't listening to you, O king. And, you know, they were criticizing them. And, you know, and then the king is threatening their life. In a sense, they're being persecuted. But, you know, I, I think something that's hard for us as Americans is hard for me. I mean, you know, we've grown up with so much freedom and everything. Uh, like, we expect things to be easy and, you know, that we're kind of supposed to be in control and we're a Judeo-Christian nation and those kind of things. Uh, but the reality is a lot of times, you know, Christians in America, if somebody's against them or whatever, it's like, oh, what's wrong with me? You know, has God forgotten about me? But the reality is, is that we ought to be concerned if we're never being criticized or, or, or persecuted instead of if we are being criticized or persecuted. Something's wrong if we're not, according to Scripture. I mean, here's what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like I said before, Nebuchadnezzar's question was ultimately a challenge to God. It really wasn't ultimately about them. They were just kind of caught in the crosshairs of his heart and his defiance and his pride and, and his rebellion against the one true God. But since they were identifying themselves uh, with, with this God, they just kind of got caught in the crosshairs of his wrath. But it really wasn't about him, them. And, and, and I think that's important for us to understand because if you take a stand for Jesus and people reject you, it's not really about you. It's about Jesus. And I think that's important to remember because sometimes it may be family and friends that we experience that rejection or opposition from. It's not about you. It's about Jesus, assuming, you know, we're really standing for Jesus in the right way and not just being like jerk for Jesus kind of thing. You know, we're, we're just, you know, we deserve that kind of treatment. Jesus put it this way, John 15. He says, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the wor world, therefore the world uh, hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So it would seem as though to me, if, if the world loves us, and remember the, the, the definition of the world in this kind of context is this world's system, you know, of values and um, just culture and all these kind of things that are, that are opposed to God, if the world loves us, it must mean that we're too much like the world. We can't make a distinction. We're not enough like Jesus to see the difference. We don't, we're not doing enough for somebody to get ticked off uh, at us if they don't like Jesus. And again, I'm not saying we go around and try to get people mad at us. We love people. But if this is true, you can be the nicest person in the world, and not everybody's going to like you. 
And that's okay. I mean, some of you don't care. But some of you need to be reminded that it's okay if everybody doesn't like you. Not everybody liked Jesus, and he was perfect. We probably shouldn't expect everybody to like us. Now, I came across an article by Andrew Black and, and Craig Bird called The Risk of Faith. And I'm not going to read the article, but one of the things that was in it was this list that characterizes persecution. And it basically goes in ascending order from the least to the greatest or the, the lightest to the worst. And so this is how they would list persecution. Disapproval. You think, are you experiencing any of this? Ridicule, pressure to conform, loss of educational opportunities, economic sanctions, shunning, alienation from community, loss of employment, loss of property, physical abuse, mob violence, harassment by officials, kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, Physical torture, which I think you could add sexual abuse to that because in some places in the world, that's how the church, particularly females, are, are being persecuted. And then ultimately, murder or execution, giving your life. And here's the thing. Let's just be real. I mean, we hear about the persecuted church. But it's hard for us to relate to. But many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world this is what they live with. I mean, I'll be honest, you know, we just kind of shared a little bit about what's going on in, in northern Uganda with the church plant there. It's put a face to it to me because, you know, when you have the conversations or see the messages in the WhatsApp chat uh, that we have amongst the, uh, our leaders, and, you know, you hear about this young man as the son of a mom uh, being saved and getting baptized and taking a bold stand for Christ. Uh, and, and, and it makes passages in the Bible like this or in the book of Acts or wherever, you know, come to life because, like, you know, the, the pastor there is like, you know, how do we handle this, these kind of things? And I'm like, you know, well, what's the Bible say? But this is kind of foreign to me. But, and we're kind of careful with the details, but I could go down this list and kind of several of those this young man has experienced. And that's what a lot of people experience. But again, it's just simply because God saved him. He became a believer in Jesus, and, and he's been bold uh, about that. And so people don't like it, but it's not about him. It's ultimately about Jesus. And, and so this is the context of the passage, and, and hopefully it helps us to kind of set it in the context of our lives or the context of our world. So let's read on. Read the rest of the story here and see how they responded. Okay, so it says, uh, picking back up in, in verse 16, remember the question. What was the question the king asked? Who's the God who can deliver you? So this is how they answered. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Here's what they said. They said, king, God can deliver us. We're not sure if he will or he won't. 
But whether he does or he doesn't, we're not bowing down. Basically what they said was, if we go down, we're going to go down standing up. If we go down, we're going to go down standing up. And so that was their response. And then Nebuchadnezzar, it says, was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed toward uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind uh, these three young men, cast them in the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell down bound in into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. But then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. There is another in the fire. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then they came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of the fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. You know how the Bible says faith without works is dead? He saw their faith by their works of the bold stand that they took. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. He's still not converted, though. That, come back next week. But, you know, he, you see him taking these steps. You see the seeds. God's working. Uh, then it says the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, um, you know, the way we're doing this with Daniel is with every chapter. I'm trying to give you a conviction, an action to take based on it, and, and, the, and the, con the connections to Christ. And, and so, I think the conviction that God would have us to develop out of this chapter is that the world seems out of control, but God is present with us. And he is able to deliver us. The world seems out of control. But God is present with us. And he is able to deliver us. Again, that's what they said. 
uh, they said that God is able. And then in, in verse 25, the king says, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. And he says the fourth is, it, form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, that's how the New King James translate it, translates it. There's some debate about this. Was, was it an angel? Uh, was it uh, literally the Son of God? And what I believe is, yes, it was Jesus, the Son of God. I believe this is what's called a Christophany a pre-incarnate appearance of the eternal Son of God. You know, before uh, the Word became flesh, uh, at times in the Old Testament, He showed up temporarily in some kind of human form uh, to minister to people in some way. And I believe that that is what is happening here. Now, the question may be, you know, some of you aren't Christians yet, and you may be like, you really believe that? You know, isn't this just like a Bible school story? I mean, is this like really a historical fact or is it a myth? And I believe it really happened. You may say, well, how could something like this happen? Well, for me, I believe the historical evidence clearly demonstrates that Jesus rose from the dead. And once I believe that, there's nothing else in the Bible that becomes unbelievable to me. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, if God accomplished that miracle, why couldn't he do any other miracle that he wanted to do? And if this really is Jesus showing up then, and he is the eternal son of God, he has power over his creation, and he can deliver people. Beyond that, if you read the history of missions, and assume that these people aren't lying, you'll find many missionaries sharing stories of miraculous supernatural intervention of God to protect them from death. Uh, Pastor Philip and I have a friend, uh, Doug Brown. He's a former IMB missionary. He's pastor at Whit Baptist Church in Morristown. He was a missionary in Uganda. And Uganda as a country has been through so much. And, you know, one of the things they've been through is at different times, you know, rebels have swept through different parts of the country. And, uh, you know, just terrorize people. When he was a missionary there, uh, you know, that, there was one of those occasions, situations. And, and it wasn't exactly where he was, but he told us about some missionaries they knew who were kind of in the line of where, uh, you know, these rebels were coming through and, you know, attacking people, robbing people, killing people. And they came outside their house at the gates there and they left. Afterwards, they got arrested uh, by the army or police or whoever, and these missionaries went to visit them in jail. And they asked them, why did you stop at the gates of our house? Why didn't you uh, come in and overrun us like you were doing uh, with the other people? And they said, well, you had four really big men stationed out there as guards, and we got scared. I'm like, we didn't have any guards. And what they believed was it was angels, which the Bible says are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who are heirs of salvation that God had placed there to protect them. And God can deliver. He doesn't always choose to do that. I mean, you go to Acts chapter 12. James got martyred. Peter got spared. When he was in prison. Why? I have no clue. God's God. I, you know, I can't explain it. 
You say, well, that's not fair. So it was unfair for James to go to heaven with an instantaneous, non-suffering kind of death. When it was all said and done, if the historical tradition is true, Peter got crucified upside down. Um, here, the thing is this. We're all going to die. The only question is when and how. The question is not if. And, and here's the thing. I'd rather live shorter than I really want to live than live without really living. I'd rather die a death that I don't necessarily want than waste my life having lived for nothing. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So, what are we living for? Are we living for something that's worth dying for? Are we living for something that's bigger and, and, and greater than us? And listen, if Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose from the dead and, and he will resurrect us and take us to heaven, and if we know we're going to die, why live in fear of how and when that might happen? See, here's the point of this. God can heal but even if he doesn't, I'm going to stand firm. God can deliver, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to stand firm. God can protect, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to stand firm. God can provide, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to stand firm. God can rescue my wayward child, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to stand firm. God is able to deliver, but however he chooses to handle a particular situation, he is present with us, he is sovereign, he is Lord, he is king, he is working out his will, will we trust him? Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. One of the most famous missionaries ever lived was Adoniram Judson. 37, I think it was, years in, in Burma. God just has used him in incredible, incredible ways. You know, while he was there, he buried two wives, three children, and spent 17 months being tortured in prison. God didn't deliver him from those things. Listen, God has not promised to deliver us from all the trials of a sinful, broken world. That's not the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is Jesus went to the cross for us and rose from the dead. And now he says, if you desire to come after me, take up your cross and follow me daily. Because he's worthy. He's worth it. And everything else is just idols that's passing away. It's like what we looked at last week. All the kingdoms of this world are going to fall. His kingdom is going to stand forever. So the response to that is to live to build his kingdom. So what are the Christ connections in this passage? I want to give you three. Number one, Jesus is always present with those who follow him. Remember Matthew 1.23, he's Emmanuel, God with us. Hebrews 13.5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he says, based on that, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know what the answer to that question is? If God's really sovereign, only what he lets anybody do to you. 
2, Jesus identifies with his church in the midst of persecution. You remember Saul before he became Paul, you know, he's going around threatening, murdering Christians, and then Jesus, the risen Lord, appears to him on the road of Damascus. He saves him, but the question that he asked, Acts 9-4, was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now think about that for a second. He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's how closely Jesus identifies with his church. For, for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world today, Jesus identifies with them in that way. That's why you should never say, I believe in Jesus but I don't need the church. I wouldn't separate what Jesus aligns like this. I mean, don't say I'm following Christ, but say I don't need the church, because when you read the New Testament, the way to follow Christ, yes, it's a personal relationship, but the whole New Testament is a, after the Gospels is about the church and living the Christian life in the context of the community of the saints. <clears throat> Third, this passage shows us that Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. Say, so where does that come from? Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now think about this for a second. Weren't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego literally brands plucked from the fire? You know, there's a picture of the gospel here. Because think about it. If you and I, if we're saved, we are brands plucked from the fire. Here's what I mean. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says the wages of sin is death. And part of the death that the Bible talks about there is eternal death separated from God in hell. But the good news is, is that Jesus, the Son of God, the fourth man in the fire, that Jesus, the eternal God, took on flesh. He came. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He never sinned, but he went to the cross, dying the death that he didn't deserve to die, bearing our sins, but ultimately, in a sense, going through hell for us on the cross because the, the fires, metaphorically speaking, of the wrath of God, the curse, the righteous judgment of God were poured out on him. Where when we trust him, when we trust in his death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for our sins, and we surrender to him as Lord, then he forgives us, he cleanses us, he makes us brands plucked from the fire. He delivers us from spiritual death, makes us alive eternally in him. And so really for some of you, <clears throat> the question for you is, are you in Christ? 
Are you trusting him and him alone? Not are you religious, not what have you done? Listen, if, if somebody said, well, you know, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And, and they said, well, what makes you a Christian? Or if, if God asked you why I should let you into heaven, you know, what would you say? And there's any I in the answer, you need Jesus. You need to get saved. Because it's nothing we've done. It's all what he has done for us. So then based on this, based on this, conne- this conviction connected to Christ, what's the action to take? And the action is that we will resist false gods, stand firm in the face of opposition, and testify to the work of Jesus for us. Isn't that what they did? Because they believed that God was with them and God was able to deliver them. They didn't bow down to the idol. They didn't give in to the criticism, to the persecution, to the threats. They, uh, you know, testified to God and his work on their behalf. And, and, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to repent of our idolatry, to resist the idols of this world. We're called to stand firm when we're opposed. We're, we're called to uh, you know, just trust Jesus with it because he went through the same thing. If people don't like us or criticize us or oppose us, accuse us, persecute us. And then ultimately, we're called not just to be on the defensive, but, and I'm not saying to be offensive, but to go on the offensive with the gospel and take it to all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations as we testify to the work of Jesus on our behalf. You see, in, in, in the book of Daniel, I, I, I've said, to, said you know, that the big idea is God's on his throne. He's sovereign. He rules and reigns over all. Jesus is Lord. And, and I believe that's correct. But there's you know, several kind of undercurrents, underlying themes there. And one of them, there's this missionary theme throughout the whole book. And you see it here. These young men were missionaries in exile in a foreign land speaking the truth to power. And that's what the church is called to do today. Are we boldly sharing our faith in Christ? Uh, let me give you an example of this. Tim, if you could put the, the picture that's in there up. So on the right, that's Dr. James Merritt. He's a pastor in Georgia. Uh, I think he's one of the best preachers in America if you ever have a chance to hear him preach. And uh, the young lady in the middle is, is a young lady named Hannah, and I, I think that's uh, her mom beside her who put this picture on social media. But basically the way he described it is that Hannah became a Christian at their church recently, and she went to school and, and told her class about it and, and told uh, her class that she was getting baptized. And uh, one of the boys in her class asked her what baptism is, so she explained it to the whole class And so when she did get baptized, he said, like, the front section of their church, and it's a large church, was full of her classmates and teachers because she went to school and talked about getting saved. Now, if that little girl did that, what excuse do we have? So we're called to stand firm, stand in the face of opposition, not bow down to the world's idols, to be a witness for Jesus. But the question, how are we going to do that? Because 
Like, I don't want to be moralistic here, and I don't want to say that's always easy. Uh, you know, don't want to say that I always get that right. How are we going to be able to live that out? And, and, and that's what I want to close with this morning. So I want to give you quickly just five things I think we see in this text. Uh, five, you know, kind of underlying things here that produced this conviction that led to their action. So number one, if we're, we're going to stand firm, if we're going to live a life where, like, uh, if we go down, we go down standing up, here's how it's going to happen. Number one, you've got to know and obey the Word of God. Where would this conviction have come from? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. You go to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, don't create any graven images. No, don't bow down to them. Don't worship them. They would have been taught that since they were kids. And so, here's the deal. You want to live with conviction. It's got to be in you before it can come out of you. And you got to have the conviction before you're going to take the action. And the conviction comes from getting the Word of God down on the inside of us. I guarantee you, if you do not have a regular, steady, healthy diet of Scripture, you will compromise instead of living with conviction. There is no way around it. The, God's Word is what produces conviction in us. It convicts us of our sins. It, it convicts us of the truth. It, it strengthens us as the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God to be able to live it out. So are you reading the Bible? Are you listening to it taught other than maybe on Sunday one or two or three times a month? Are you memorizing it? Are you studying it? Are you thinking on it? You're not going to grow strong spiritually without that. There is no way. The way we develop physically is diet and exercise. The way we develop spiritually is diet and exercise. Our diet is the bread of the Word of God. Our exercise is obeying the Word of God. These two things together will produce conviction and the strength to live that conviction. There is no way around it. I mean, I, I guarantee you, I mean, I, I maybe shouldn't say that. I don't want to make a liar, but I am so confident of this that if we could somehow track the most spiritually strong people in our church, and then we could examine how they spend their time, I guarantee you that 90 plus percent would be the people that spend the most time in Scripture. That's just how it works. Second, trust that God is able to deliver us, but make up our minds then we're not going to compromise even if he chooses not to deliver us. He can. Whether he will or not, he's sovereign. That's up to him, not me. But whether he does or he doesn't, I'm going to stand firm. If I go down, I'm going to go down standing up. Here's an example of this. You know, when we were in Hawaii uh, lately or recently, <coughs> and... Um, my voice does not appreciate being back in East Tennessee in the fall after my, all my allergies went away there. So, sorry if that's a little rough this morning. But you know, instead of flying back to Knoxville, we flew back, flew back through Birmingham, saw Lily at school, and she had a class when we got there. We couldn't find a rental car anywhere near Birmingham, so we had to wait on her. So I'm wandering around uh, the, the lower level, the baggage claim of the uh, Birmingham airport, and, and, and came across um, like the, this section 
and it's like a, a, it's dedicated to Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was a leader in the civil rights movement that I wasn't familiar with. And, um, I mean, but it's, Sounds like he made a great impact. Maybe he was a little more, you know, local where Dr. King had the national uh, reputation. But it it says he was arrested around 35 times, hospitalized after being attacked by a KKK mob. Uh, One year at Christmas, they bombed his house and thought he was dead. But he came walking out of the rubble of his uh, bombed uh, house. Because, you know, we've already seen in Daniel, he outlived an empire. You're going to live until God's through with you, if you're doing the will of God. But, but he said this, a couple things. He said, you have to be prepared to die before you can be prepared to live. <clears throat> and then he also said this, and, you know, this is a bold statement, but he said, I'm either going to kill segregation or I'm going to be killed by it. And that leads to the next one is he counted the cost. These young men counted the cost and realized there's a price to be paid either way. It's like, I'm going to pay the price. I'm not going to, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down standing up, but I'm not going to go down bowing down. There's a price to be paid. Listen, this could have cost Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their lives. They were young. They had their lives in front of them. That was a price to be paid. Or they could have bowed, and it cost them their soul. And that's a price to be paid. What price are we going to pay? What's the price that we're going to pay? It's like the young man that I've referenced in Uganda. He's paid a price to Declare his faith in Christ. I mean, he he paid a price to make a profession of faith. He paid a price to get baptized. You know, some of you won't get baptized in a place. You say you're a follower of Jesus where, you know, like there's people that cheer for you. This guy's kicked out of his family, uh, kicked out of his home, threatened, beaten up. There's a price to pay. I mean, it's got to be more than about our comfort. Think of the price that Jesus paid for us. What's the price we're going to pay? It's going to cost one way or the other. But listen, are we calculating the cost in earthly terms or in eternal terms? Are we calculating the cost in earthly terms or in eternal terms? Fourth, live as a living sacrifice. Notice what he said here. I think this is a really important phrase in the whole thing. It says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said of them in verse 28, they trusted in him, frustrated the king's word, and they yielded their bodies. See, here's the thing. When he tried to kill them, they were already dead, and it's hard to kill a dead person. They were physically alive, obviously, but they had died to themselves. They had put their lives in God's hands and said, again, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down standing up. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And that's what they had done. And listen, here's the reality. That's a daily surrender. 
And beyond that, it's a daily battle, if we're honest. Nothing's going to, I think, going to be able to say, oh, I'm 100% surrendered to Jesus all the time. But listen, the more we compromise in little things daily, the less likely it is that we'll be able to stand when something big comes. Have we died to ourselves? Have we yielded ourselves to Christ? Is He truly our Lord? And then, last thing, recognize that our stand becomes a witness for Jesus. God was using this in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and I'm sure in the lives of others. And when we take a stand, He is going to use it. Listen, like we talked about the first week, if we're conformed to the culture because we're compromising, we can't make the difference that God wants us to make. They made a difference. God will use you to make a difference. But if we're going to make a difference, it has to be with the conviction that God's in control, that he's raising us up to make a difference, that his kingdom is the one uh, that stands, and that he is present with us and able to deliver us. And if we build that, if we believe that, we can live in a way with, with the conviction and the idea that if I go down, I'm going to go down standing up. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.